Today on this edition of the Forest City Church Podcast, Aria Childers continues the Sunday School series with a message titled, What's Your Response? Good morning, y'all. Welcome to another week of Sunday School. This series has been taking me back. I grew up in church, went to children's church just about every week, heard about the stories of Jonah and the big fish, Joshua and the wall of Jericho. I learned about Jacob and Esau, and I colored way too many pictures of Jesus walking on water and Moses parting the Red Seas. And when it was time for the Bible lesson, we'd all gather at the front in front of the teacher, and the greatest honor that any of us could have was to be selected for helping her with the flannel graph. If you don't know what a flannel graph is, you are missing out. And while I could rattle off different Bible stories and maybe what the lesson was that we could learn, I'll be honest, I took these stories at face value. I wasn't a super curious kid. I didn't ask a ton of questions. I was and still kind of am a rule follower and a typical middle child peacekeeper. And for a long time, that carried into how I read the Bible and even viewed God. Like, this is what happened and is what it is. Which is why it's so shocking now when I look back at these different stories I learned about as a kid, like David and Goliath, or Abraham nearly sacrificing his son Isaac, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, or Daniel and Lion's End, and I think about how I just thought this stuff was normal. That's why over this last series, you've gone back to Sunday school. Because maybe you were taught that it was even wrong or bad to get curious and question the Bible. So we grow up with this view of this text that it's just normal and that it's ordinary or just a storybook. We've gone back to these stories that we've heard years ago about how to want to unpack them and engage with them now and how they're relevant to our lives. The first time that the Bible kind of came alive to me and it was more than just a storybook and it kind of made me question my faith was when I was 10 or 11 years old that was in children's church. We had to do this little art project over the course of a few weeks about a lesson that we had heard in the last month or so. And I chose a story about Paul and Silas in jail in Acts 16. Fun fact about me, I absolutely hate um, art projects and crafts. I'm not good at them and they're never good enough. I was a joy to my parents in the elementary school science fair. But as I'm making this little jailhouse inside of a shoebox, my mind was open to the actual impact and power of what could happen when you are following Jesus. If you have your Bible with you or if the Bible app on your phone, go ahead and open to Acts 16. So in Acts 16, we find Paul, Silas, Luke, and Timothy traveling. They've preached and planted and strengthened churches all over what would be modern-day Turkey. And they're looking for like their next assignment, their next city to go to. And so they travel to the first one. The Holy Spirit's like, no, that's not it. So they go down to a second, and again, the Holy Spirit closes the door and stops them from entering the city. During the night, Paul has a vision of Macedonia and this man begging them to come to Macedonia to help them. Acts 16.10 says, so we have to... So we, So we decided to leave for Macedonia at once, having concluded that God was calling us to preach the good news there. So they've got their mission and they go. And while they're they're preaching, people are receiving the gospel, they're being saved, and it's starting to make sense now why the first two places didn't work out. But then, like any other good story, trouble. We pick up in Acts 16, 16, and y'all, we're just going to dive in. We're just going to go for the story, all right? You with me? All right. Acts 16, 16. 
One day, as we were going down to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit that enabled her to tell the future. She earned a lot of money for her masters by telling fortunes. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, these men are servants of the most high God, and they have come to tell you how to be saved. This went on day after day until Paul got so exasperated that he turned and said to the demon within her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And instantly it left her. Her master's hopes of wealth were now shattered, so they grabbed Paul and Silas and dragged them before the authorities of the marketplace. The whole city is in an uproar because of these Jews, they shouted to the city officials. They are teaching customs that are illegal for us to, as Romans to practice. A mob quickly formed against Paul and Silas, and the city officials ordered them stripped and beaten with wooden rods. They were severely beaten, and then they were thrown into prison. The jail was ordered to make sure that they didn't escape, so the jailer put them into the inner dungeon and clamped their feet in the stocks. All right, y'all, stay with me. This starts to get good. Around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening. Suddenly, there was a massive earthquake, and the prison was shaken to its foundation. All the doors immediately flew open, and the chains of every prisoner fell off. The jailer woke up to see the prison doors wide open. He assumed all the prisoners had escaped so he drew his sword to kill himself but Paul shouted to him stop don't kill yourself we are all here the jailer called for lights and ran to the dungeon and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas then he brought them out and asked sirs what must I do to be saved they replied believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved along with everyone in your household and then they shared the word of the Lord with him and with all who lived in his household, even at the hour of the night. The jailer cared for them and washed their wounds that he and everyone in his household were immediately baptized. He brought them into his house and set a meal before them, and he and his entire household rejoiced because they all believed in God. Woo! Y'all, demon possession beatings, an earthquake, a suicide attempt, and salvations. How is that for a Sunday school story? I think, though, that it's probably safe to say that none of this was necessarily a part of Paul and Silas's plans. But just like our lives, rarely do circumstances go as we intended in the unexpected, the messy, disappointing prison moments in our lives that we experience reveal the patterns and practices of who we truly are. Before we continue all, let's pray together. God, thank you for this time together. Thank you that we can open your word and learn more about who you are and how we can live for you. Open our hearts, Jesus, and let these be your words. It's in your name we pray, amen. A number of years ago, I went with my sister to take my oldest nephew, who was almost two at the time, uh, to a children's event uh, here in town. Uh, Side note, disclaimer, I don't like crowds. Even before COVID, I wasn't a fan of fairs and festivals where there'd be a ton of people moving every which way. And so at this event, there are way more people than I had anticipated. I pulled the good old Midwest, oh, I'm sorry, about every 10 seconds. And so when we left, I was a little bit flustered, and me and my sister walking out to the car we're in the parking lot we're holding either hands of my or either hand of my nephews and I'm just venting a little bit about the situation and I just ended it with an oh people man and a second later I hear this little voice pop, pipe up and go people man and it stopped me dead in my tracks one I was just glad that that is what he caught on to say but two for the first time I realized that this little kid was watching me 
He was listening to me and he was learning how to respond from me. I now have a toddler son on my own who is about a year and a half. He looks just like my husband, but he acts like me and my mom calls that payback. He's, and now he's starting to get that to that age where he's mimicking everything that me and my husband do when he's testing our limits and he's pushing our boundaries. He's watching to see how we react to him. When I make the mistake of not going to the self-checkout line at Target and then inevitably picking the slowest line, he's sensing my frustration and feeding off of my response. And some of you with older children, you're like, yeah, and it only gets worse. Oh, I don't need to hear that right now. But I realized, I never realized to what extent this little two and a half foot human being could be a mirror to my own heart. In the good moments, the scary, the exciting, and the furiating, his response is often just a reflection of mine. And when you find ourselves in these prison moments in our lives, in unexpected and painful situations or circumstances, a lot of times we're not thinking about how to respond. When, but when we're hit with that diagnosis, when our marriage is in shambles, when we lose that job, when our loved one dies, when we're in the thick of it, when we are barely surviving, when we are hanging on by a thread, what patterns and practices in our thoughts and our behavior and our heart are revealed by our response? My husband, Jake, has lovingly nicknamed me worst case scenario. And admittedly, I can be a little bit dramatic. I'm that person who's going to WebMD and Google my symptoms until I am convinced that I have a rare illness that has only been found in three people across the globe. I got stung by a bee earlier this summer, and I was just in the office saying my goodbyes. I was sure they were going to have to amputate. I'm not allergic to bees. That's just where my head goes. So the nickname's a little bit warranted. I'll give him that. I have a good amount of strengths, but responding well in crises is not one of them. So in 10-year-old Ari, I read about how Paul and Silas' response in prison was to praise. I was intrigued, but also pretty confused. I thought they'd just be livid with God. Like, God, this wasn't part of the plan. This wasn't supposed to happen. We could have gone to the first two places that we suggested, but you brought us here, and now this? When life hits the fan, our response in those prison moments reveal what we value, what we prioritize, what we hold close, and where we put our trust. So we all love the promises that Jesus, Jesus gives us. He promises that he will give us rest. He promises that he's always with us. He promises that with God, all things are possible. But Jesus also straight up promises that life is not going to be easy. If someone told you that if you decided to follow Jesus, that suddenly life would be a breeze and that all your dreams would come true and that the Cubs would win two World Series titles in your lifetime, then I'm sorry. This is kind of awkward. I hate to be the one to tell you, but that's just not true. John 16, says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take art. I have overcome the world. Jesus tells us that trouble is going to come. Prison moments will happen, but we don't have to walk through them blindly or let them overwhelm and be the end for us. What's so incredible about scripture is that we literally have a guide on how to navigate our lives. So how do we prepare and respond in a way that, that invites, and invites God to show up, that we praise him and invite him to show up even in the unexpected, messy, disappointing seasons in our lives? While there's a whole lot to unpack in the scripture today, I want to narrow in on a couple of things that I think that we can take away, a couple of questions that we can ask ourselves and apply to our lives literally as soon as we walk out of the store. So first off, 
Paul and Silas, or for Paul and Silas, prayer and worship were disciplines. They were practices. Think about it. Paul and Silas were shackled and in jail. They didn't murder anyone. They didn't steal. They just cast out a spirit. The girl's owner got mad because he lost his money. He turned on Paul and Silas because he could no longer profit and take advantage of this girl anymore. This was unjust and unfair. They didn't belong in prison. They would have every right to be angry and to fight against the guards. Like, I've been ready to fight people for a whole lot less. But... Instead, instead, with feet bound, bodies bruised, and hands shackled, they praised and they worshipped. Y'all, that doesn't just happen by accident. You just don't stumble into that kind of posture. When you think that you have a vision for your life, with your relationship, your kids, your career, whatever that thing is, you have a vision of what it's supposed to look like, and instead you unexpectedly find yourself in the worst possible situation, if we're honest, our first reaction isn't just going to be to praise and to give thanks. Our prisons reveal patterns. And in this case, Paul and Silas were prepared for prison because of how they prepared their hearts. When they got to prison, they had a pattern that produced that response. Jesus reminds us in Luke 6.45, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So this sounds like a Sunday school question, but I am so serious when I ask you, what's in your heart? What has roots in you? Where are you putting your time and your energy and your resources? Are you consumed by chasing after a title, a promotion, a certain amount of money in the bank, a relationship, a status, power? Whatever controls us will control the type of fruit that we produce, the type of response we produce, especially in these prison moments. It's like that psalm that you might have learned in Sunday school back in the day about the wise man who built the house upon the rock. I'm not going to sing it, but in Matthew 7, 24 through 27, Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, and the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundations on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. Y'all, when we put our trust, our values, our identities, our hearts in the things that are so fleeting, when we hit these prison moments in our lives, our response will be to grasp for any semblance of security from idols that are made out of sand. There's a Hebrew word, Hagah, and it means to utter, to meditate, to speak. To Hagah would be to continually mutter and to speak out loud repeatedly over and over again. If we have a lifestyle of speaking it and muttering scripture in the word of God, it will help prepare us for what is to come. Sometimes I know it can be just overwhelming on where to start in the Bible. Like it's, it's big, there's so many books and chapters. But if you're going through a tough season right now, or if you just want to get in the habit of meditating on Scripture, open up to Psalm 23. David reminds us about who God is and proclaims in Psalm 23, 4, you may have heard this verse, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Take it one chapter, even start with just one verse a day to memorize, speak it out loud, not just in our heads and ponder it. Ask yourself, what does it mean for my life? Like even in this hour, what does this verse mean for me? And let scripture begin to take root in your life. 
Like Trevor mentioned last week, we need to keep stock of what we're consuming and filling ourselves with and make it a habit of protecting ourselves with what we are listening to and watching. That doesn't mean that the news and social media and podcasts and TV and music's bad. I'll be the first to admit that, y'all, judge me if you want, but my love for Taylor Swift runs deep, and my favorite way to recharge my introvert batteries for an afternoon is to binge watch Grey's Anatomy. But... When I'm faced with the messy, broken realness of life, Meredith Gray and T-Swift are not going to be the ones saving me, unfortunately. So in my everyday life, am I filling my soul right now with the words and the truth of our actual Savior to speak over myself and those around me? The second question I have is, who do you have around you? If you look at the people in your inner circle and the loudest voices in your life, are they people who are going to praise even in prison? Are they people who will pray for you and encourage you and go to battle alongside you even in the darkest hours of your life? Are they life-giving or are they life-draining? Are the people speaking into your life harsh and critical or when rubber meets the road, are they willing to link arms beside you and walk alongside you even if you can't see what's ahead? Y'all, how weird would it have been if Paul is just praising God, giving thanks, inviting him in, and Paul is just in the corner like, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and sit this one out. I'm over it. I'm done with this. Like, I wouldn't have blamed him necessarily for that response, but I wonder if Silas would have continued in his response if he knew that Paul wasn't alongside of him, or his response would have been tapered. I think sometimes we underestimate the power and the impact of the people in our lives. There's a poster that hangs above my room that I look, look at just about every day and read over. It's one that one of my very best friends gave to me years ago. It's by Jamie Torkowski. He's a founder of a nonprofit to write love in her arms. And it reads, you'll need coffee shops and sunsets and road trips, airplanes and passports and new songs and old songs, but people more than anything else. You will need other people, and you will need to be that other person to someone else, a living, breathing, screaming invitation to believe better things. I think about that quote so often because it's just been proven time and time again to be true in my life. Y'all, I know that I'm not, like, I know that I'm young, and not as young as maybe some of y'all think that I am. Let's just get that out of the way. I know that I have a lot to learn. Like, I'm not up here pretending to be wise and experienced. The more that I open my mouth, the more you'll see that. But this is what I've learned, and I have learned that people need other people. There are practices and disciplines that we need to do alone to grow in our personal relationship with Jesus, but our faith is not a solo sport. We need other people. That's why part of our mission here at Forest City Church is to help people find their people. That's why small groups are such a high value. Through this place, I've met some of the most influential people in my life, people who will lean in, people who will show up, people who will ask the hard questions, people who will celebrate the wins with me and sit with me in the lows. Sometimes we tell ourselves that it's just easier to do life alone. Like that's just how I'm wired. That's how it is. And I get it. Letting other people in is hard and it's scary. It's scary to be vulnerable and to put yourself out there. You tell yourself, hey, I've been through this before. What if they walk away? What if I get hurt? But what if they stay? What, what if you took that step to get into a group here at Forest City or you just began to be more intentional about the people and in in the relationships that you have already? You began to show up for the people in your life and they began to show up for you, to speak life and to share meals and to encourage and strengthen and challenge and walk through and respond to prison moments together. 
An old African proverb says, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Uh, three weeks from today, I'll be running in Chicago uh, for the Chicago Marathon with an incredible team from Four City, for Team World Vision, to raise money uh, for clean water. Um, it's, it, it's an incredible cause. I'm super excited about it. Side note, y'all, this is the fifth year in a row that our church has partnered alongside Team World Vision. And y'all, we are less than $12,000 away from cumulatively raising $1 million for clean water. That is $20,000 from, sorry, 20,000 kids who now have clean water because of this place. So shamelessly, I'm just going to say, if you know somebody who's running, one, encourage the absolute heck out of them. And two, would you consider giving towards and partnering with them and partnering with somebody who's running? If you don't know anybody in your circle right now who is running, uh, you can find them today because they will be the ones limping and waddling along. Right now, we are in the home stretch of an exhausting, extremely hot and humid, but rewarding season of training and fundraising. Yesterday, we, we had our longest training run yet. It was 20 miles, hence this stool that I may need at some point. Uh, but this is my third year uh, with Team World Vision running the marathon, and as excited as I am for race weekend and as humbled and grateful as I am to be a part of such an incredible organization bringing change to people's lives, I would be absolutely lying through my teeth if I said that there weren't a million other things that I would rather be doing than waking up at 5 a.m. on a Saturday to get a long run in or accommodating my family time to accommodate a, work, a workout. I wish that I could have just spent these last five months sleeping in, eating pizza, and watching Grey's Anatomy. I wish that I could just eat whatever I wanted the night before the race and then show up on Sunday morning and crush the 26.2 miles. Unfortunately, though, that's not how it works because I have tried. See, back in the spring, when I broached the topic of me running again with my husband, Jake, he kind of just looked at me like, do you not remember what you put your body through the first time? Because if you forgot, I can show you this plethora of, of ace bandages and knee braces or our medical bills to remind you. See, uh, if you've ever trained for a long-distance race, you know that it's time-consuming and daunting. It's a huge commitment and one that, I'll be honest, I did not respect in the slightest. Because I ran track and cross-country in school, distance running kind of comes naturally to me. Don't ask me to kick a soccer ball. Don't ask me to play tennis. But I can run in a straight line. So early in the 2000s, thank you, thank you, really, really gifted over here. Uh, early in the 2017 training, I was doing fine, and so I got in my head that I didn't need to train during the week, I didn't need to run or to work out, and that strength training was just a nice, kind suggestion. So after ignoring the majority of the planning, or ignoring the majority of the plan, or the training plan throughout the week, and not drinking enough water, I would just go out and do the long runs on Saturdays. And I got by for a little bit, but as the mileage increased, my knee began to ache. I began to panic, so I had to scale back the long runs for a little bit. But because Mama didn't raise no quitter, just somebody who was insanely irresponsibly stubborn, I finished out the 2017 race, and I could barely walk for. Uh, weeks after because of such severe pain. So I went to the doctor, got a brace, uh, let my knee heal, did the exercise, and just kind of put running on the shelf for a little while. 
Six months later, promotion for the 20, or 2018 race starts appearing, and I just kind of might forgot like the insane amount of pain and agony that I had just put myself through because when sign-up came along, I was like, yes, let's do it. We're doing it again. Kids need clean water. This will be my swan song. Sign me up. I told you all that I have a lot to learn still. Um, so I started running again, and I'm feeling okay. I'm running more than once a week, but still not enough, still not strength training, and we get into higher mileage, and again, my other knee starts to hurt. Again, mama didn't raise no quitter, just insanely stubborn. So I finish off the season. I race a little bit better than the year before, but my knees are just tapped. So when I talked to Jake about it, you know, a few months ago, because it is such a big commitment, I assured him that it would be different this time. Luckily, I'm extremely convincing, and he agreed. And while I'll be honest and say that I still don't run as many miles as I should, I, my focus has been strengthening my body and my knees and my legs. And miraculously, knock on wood, I feel better than I have any other year. It doesn't mean that I'm not tired and not sore and I'm not worn out. I am. But get this, because I am protecting and preparing my body for what's to come and my knees for what they're going to experience on October 10th, I can run the race and respond well when I'm pushed to my you may not run a marathon and after listening to me you're like I will absolutely not run a marathon and I get it I don't blame you but how are you preparing your heart and your mind and your soul to respond when you enter into a prison and you're tested and you're tried to your limits it doesn't mean that we won't experience hurt we may walk out of these prison moments with bruises and wounds that will need to heal and that may take time and put and people around you to help care for you and that is okay in this world, y'all, we will have trouble. Unexpected situations and diagnoses and broken relationships. This life is broken and messy. But these prison moments reveal, reveal patterns. And we have the opportunity to walk out of these doors today and live a life that is prepared to produce the response that, invite God to, that invites God in to be present and to move even in the darkest of circumstances. Maybe you find yourself today in the midnight hour of a prison and you look back and you're like, I haven't responded well at all. I've responded out of hurt and insecurity and fear and anger. The good news today is that we have a God, we serve a God who is a God of second chances and new beginnings and fresh starts. No matter what things have looked like up to this point, when we choose to follow Jesus, we will get to walk in his grace and keep trying and failing and trying again. So what would it look like today if we really be, did begin to prepare our hearts for prison moments? What would happen to your perspective and to your relationships, your attitude, and your inner monologue if you began to practice diving into and meditating on scripture and paying attention to who's in your corner? Could you imagine that the next time that you walk into a prison, you don't respond out of fear, insecurity, or anger, but instead of invitation and expectation and praise. To invite and expect and to look for God to show up in the unexpected, disappointing, and messy seasons of our lives. That's who I want to be. That's who I want my son to see. That's who I want my nephews to see and my friends and families to see. Because when we find ourselves in these prisons, when things are not going our way or has how we planned or expected, it is a chance for us to have more of an expectation for God to show up and to reveal who he is in the unexpected disappointing seasons in our lives. What looks like a prison can actually reveal the pattern of God to shock and to surprise us in the places that we least expect. 
We do serve a God who is faithful. We do serve a God who is going to show up just like he showed up for Paul and Silas 2,000 years ago. So y'all, that's what we're going to do today. We're going to put this into practice. Together, we are going to stand and respond in worship. Right now, it might be a song of thanksgiving. For others, it might be a battle cry. Either way, y'all, I invite you to respond, to stand now, and let us raise a hallelujah together. You've been listening to Aria Childers with part six of the Sunday School series at Forest City Church. Thanks for listening.